when he was prescribed the antidepressants, but he was also using marijuana and mushrooms and who knows what, that combination is a very lethal combination in terms of volatility. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. Today I'm really excited we have on the line Mindy Greiling. Mindy is a former Minnesota state representative for 20 years. She also formerly served on the national and state NAMI boards and is currently the president of NAMI Ramsey County here in Minnesota. So Mindy, welcome. Thank you, Al. I'm delighted to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. You have had a lot of you know, impact on mental health legislation here. You have lived experience with a son um, with a mental illness that we'll get into and also have a book that's about to be published with your story of being a parent with a son with a mental illness and being a state legislator. So really excited to have you. Thank you. So you joined the state legislature in uh, 1993, correct? Correct. Yes. I had been on the local school board for five years, and I noticed that a lot of decisions were made at the legislature instead of the local level. So actually, education was my topic most of the time in the legislature. And I only added health care, the mental health system, particularly after our son got sick. Right, right. And what was that like running for a state uh, representative position? Well, it was hard fought um, because I'm a, a Democrat and the city I live in, Roseville, is actually, especially when I first ran, very much a swing seat. So I had to really knock on those doors and talk to the voters. And luckily, I enjoyed doing that. It was really fun to meet people and, and learn you know, by walking various parts of the districts, but it was a hard race. And I felt very honored 
honored to win and get to go to the Minnesota House of Representatives. That must have just been a, a huge highlight in your life. It sure was. And then you said your focus, I don't even know exactly how that works. So you choose then a focus area and a committee to join? Well, you choose a focus area or more than one, and then you beg to get on those committees. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> and so I had to beg to get on the Education Finance Committee because so many legislators prioritize education when they're running the first time and they want to be on the education committees. So I was lucky because I'd been a teacher and a school board member and was from a district where education was important and I'd won a swing seat. So those were all the magic points that got you the committee that you wanted if you wanted education. And I was very lucky and very pleased um, to get that committee. And so that's really interesting. So then do they also look at how many people are, how many representatives are on each committee and try to balance them? Or is it more primarily about your interests and uh, how do they determine that? Well, all those things. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when I was a teacher each year, those of us who taught whichever grade I had fourth grade, we would all go through the class lists ahead of time. And we tried to balance out boys and girls and and you know who were the top students and the middle students and those who needed extra help and yep. and um, all of those things. So the leaders in the in the legislature have to do that too. They have to balance out some from the core cities, some from the inner ring suburbs, outer ring suburbs, greater Minnesota, men and women, um, Democrats and Republicans. You know they have to all wow. very many things, and then they also have to consider what people want. And it's, I'm sure it's hard for them too, because there's many more people that want some committees like education, but can't get them. And then other people, I had to once be on a gambling committee and I certainly didn't want that committee, but they <laughs> put me there <laughs> because right. you don't get everything you want. Right, right. Wow, that's really interesting. And then let's say you didn't get education. When would be the next time that you might be able to opt into that? Do you have to wait for your next term? You have to wait for your next term. And luckily in the House of Representatives, a term is only two years. In the Senate, it would be four. You'd have to wait. But in the House, you know, things change really fast. And if you don't get your committee the first time, you can try again two years later. If you finally do get it, then you tend to get to keep it unless, um, you know, something unusual happens. So sometimes there aren't too many openings for new people, but it's all apple cart upset each, every two years. Right, right. Wow. That's really interesting. And so you went in there with your eye on education and what was it then uh, from 93 when you started and then 1999 when your son was diagnosed with a mental illness that you kind of changed your focus and added mental health as a part of your uh, joining that committee? That's exactly what I did. I didn't ditch education, certainly, because that was my platform. That was a powerful place to be. But I added mental illness. And I didn't have time to be on the health care committees. So I just started working on legislation. You don't have to be on a committee to introduce bills that would go through other committees. So I just started by by working on uh, various bills and legislation. And then um, later, as time wore on, um, 
interest built up in improving the mental health system. And I take pride in being the leader on that in the Minnesota House. We actually started a bipartisan mental health caucus. And we patterned it after uh, the early childhood caucus that had had Senate and House leaders from each party, and then uh, got a lot of people interested in joining that committee or that caucus. And then that that elevated the issue of early childhood. So those of us interested in mental health um, copied that. And we had Democrat and Republic from, Republican chairs from the House and the Senate. So we had four co-chairs. We got a lot of legislators to join because of course, really, when you scratch beneath the surface, as you know, with this program, almost everybody has a personal stake in some type of mental illness, whether it's their own, their family members, their friends. And so a lot of legislators were interested. They just hadn't you know, been leaders in the area. And once we got so many legislators interested, there was actually one year towards the end of my time, a mental health committee. It was a whole committee just to deal with the mental health system. And also I finally got to be the education finance chair when I had been in the legislature for 12 years, I think it was. And then I, as the education chair, was able to um, make sure that we had hearings on children's mental health, you know, teenagers, how could teachers be trained to recognize signs? And, and then the school support staff could follow up and families could learn about mental illness. You know, you, there's just so many opportunities in the legislature to do good if you become interested in an issue. And you often personal experience drives legislators. Right. Wow, that is fantastic. Was creating that caucus uh, a bipartisan mental health caucus, was that your greatest achievement, would you say, or, or one of the top ones? Well, that was a very top achievement, and it was a vehicle to do good. And I would say my top achievement was when we were able to increase the funding for the mental health system more than it had ever been increased in the history of the state. You know, when you talk about an issue, you can do a certain amount with policies, but in the end, if you're really going to make a difference in terms of what's available for people to get care in the mental health system, you have to finally increase capacity by spending more money. And we were able to do that working with the mental health organization. So that was the crowning glory of my time there. And then the session after I left, when I gave my retirement speech um, in 2012, um, I admonished all my colleagues on the House floor to do even more for the mental health system, I said, or my ghost will come back and haunt you in these halls. <laughs> and they, the next year, the next biennium, they actually for a second time, increase the mental health system funding to a his, another historic high. So that was, the, the caucus was the means towards that end. Right. Wow, that is fantastic. And what a way to just blend, uh, you know, your two important topics to your heart, education first, and then being able to combine that with mental illness when, you know, once your son became ill. Um, that's pretty incredible. That was a real, I like the way you put that. 
yeah. combining it with my heart. Yeah, that's beautiful. So 1999, and before we get into this, really your story with your family and, and your son, Jim, I do want to just share with the listeners that you've written a book, it's about to be published, um, Fix What You Can, Schizophrenia and a Lawmaker's Fight for Her Son. So I just want to share with listeners that I don't typically talk about family members and such just due to privacy and, and so forth. This episode's a bit different because obviously um, Jim is open with his mental illness and you're writing a book, you've written a book about his illness. So therefore we are talking about Jim and his, his mental illness and how it impacted your family. So 1999, how old was Jim at the time? Well, he was 21 when he was diagnosed, um, you know, and as everybody that deals with mental illness knows, um, it's coming on, you know, before you're diagnosed and you just don't know it or you don't, haven't put the pieces together. So he was, I'm sure, sick since junior high, but it didn't floridly develop into, um, into schizophrenia until he was 21 and that's when he was diagnosed. And he was diagnosed with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder? Well, he's, his final diagnosis, you know, it's such a process. First, they say it must be depression and you get uh, antidepressants. And then maybe it's uh, depression with psychotic features. And then maybe it's bipolar disorder. And then maybe it's schizophrenia. And finally, you know, after a, a few years, he's finally, they've settled on schizoaffective disorder. And that seems to really fit because he has the mood swings, you know, of bipolar disorder, but also the hallucinations and, and um, both audio and visual for the, what are the hallmarks of, of schizophrenia. Well, that in itself must be really challenging for the patient, for Jim in this case, and for family and loved ones to go through all of these different diagnoses and wonder, like, when are the doctors going to get this right? And why does it keep changing? And what, how does that impact his treatment? That is, that's really true. And that is, you know, I was frustrated with that at the time, but I've reconciled that that's as best as the doctors can do because they don't want to, even though they think it might be, you know, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, they don't want to label somebody before they really know. And there's no test, you know, that you can do like cancer to see if you have it, it just has to progress and then see what happens. And so, um, you know, as frustrating as it is, I can't uh, lambast the doctors for right. not doing any better, because that's just just how it is. But you're right, it was very hard. I was all set and happy with, um, with bipolar disorder, I had gone to Barnes and Noble and read, I think I had like a a grocery bag full of books and I'd read them all and then they changed the diagnoses right. and I just uh, fell apart you know I was oh I goodness. thought this is one more thing I just cannot I was reconciled to that but not schizophrenia uh, my grandmother had schizophrenia so I was always thrilled that Jim wasn't going to rise to that level and when he when he did you know that was very traumatic for all of us because um, she was, she was, um, you know, very sick. And she was in the time long ago in the 50s and 60s, you know, when people with schizophrenia were put in state hospitals. 
So I had to initially get over the idea that it was such a dead end disease like it was for her, because for Jim, you know, actually he's doing really well. It's not the same sentence of a disease that it used to be. And, but initially that's part of what I've written about in the book is how I thought, oh no, like my grandmother. And I just, um, that was very hard. Yeah. Well, we all have different different triggers based on different experiences, right? And if that's what you know as schizophrenia, of course, that's what's going to come to your mind. Um, but it's yes. good to know that it's very different these days. So in in 1999, if I remember correctly, he had some type of psychotic break at that point, didn't he? He did. Um, you know, at w- like a lot of people with different types of mental illnesses, he was also using drugs. And that's part of why we didn't recognize his illness. We knew he was using drugs and we thought, we thought, and we actually hoped or wanted to think that was what it was and that then you could get over it. So that kind of masked his um, episodes, but also when he was prescribed the antidepressants, but he was also using marijuana and mushrooms and who knows what, that combination is a very lethal combination in terms of volatility. So that's when he really had a, a psychotic break and an episode where where we had to call the police. He was actually seeing a psychologist and that person told us that as long as Jim wasn't willing to take medications or follow medical advice, we really had to wait for the police to be called and then they could take him to the emergency room and then things would get on track. And, um, you know, the whole intersection of the mental health system and the police that's being, you know, discussed so much nowadays after the George Floyd situation, that's something that always weighs heavy on my heart all these years too, is um, the criminalization of mental illness. You know, people with mental illness aren't criminals, but yet um, this is what families are still advised, you know, call the police and get to the emergency room and then you'll get on track. And um, also if you're being transported from civil commitment from one facility to another, the sheriff does the transport. And just like my grandmother was carted off to the state hospital by the sheriff, often they're unmarked cars now, thank goodness. Um, But there's just so much overlap with the the criminal justice system and the mental health system. And part of that, I think, is because of uh, drug use, because that just makes everything worse in terms of how the person is acting. And so many people, more than half of the people that have a mental illness do turn to drugs or they are using them at the same time. And that just makes things worse, even though it feels better in the short term, I suppose. Right. So it sounds like Jim was not only using marijuana, but some other heavier drugs. Yes. Yeah. Uh And, and what was that first episode like where you had to call the police? Can you kind of describe what what was happening? Well, um, like I said, we were looking for a chance to call the police because that's what we'd been advised. You know, we just couldn't get any help for him. He wasn't going to, he was agreeing to take the antidepressant, but he said he wouldn't, didn't want to take anything else. He didn't need to meet with the psychiatrist if, and we couldn't get in for weeks anyway. So we were 
actually hoping for some trigger that we could call the police. And um, so the day that we that I called the police, my husband was here as well. I actually put some of his drugs down the garbage disposal while he was taking a shower. And then he came out and noticed that and, of course, flew into a frenzy and punched a hole in our wall and, you know, was just physically really out of control and took off down the street. So then I called the police and they came. And that's when I was shocked when they said the psychologist was wrong, that they couldn't do anything if he wasn't willing. And um, they were prepared to go until I just begged, you know, isn't there anything else to do? So the officer called the his station and they finally agreed to call the county crisis team, which no one had told us was even an option. And they came out and um, they convinced Jim to go to the hospital with them. And then he said um, he was hearing voices, he told them. And that was the first we'd heard of that. And that's when I really thought of my grandmother. You know, if he was hearing voices, she had heard actually the radio, she said, talk to her. Um, but that was probably the one of the worst days of our lives, you know, in his whole time he had the illness because we had to call the police. That was traumatic. We had to hear for the first time that he was hearing voices. Mm -hmm. And there was all that physical violence, property damage in our home. And, you know, I wasn't sure if that wouldn't translate over to punching me or somebody else. It, it didn't. He, he has actually never hurt a person. But at the beginning, you just don't know what might happen. So that was a terrible day. Oh, it just sounds very, very scary. And I would imagine as a parent, you just feel so helpless. Yes. Yeah. It just wasn't our son. You know, he was always the sweetest, kindest, gentlest person. And to have him acting like this, you know, it just felt like we had somebody else in our house. Right. So I'm curious, you mentioned that you think he really may have been sick since junior high. And what gives you those thoughts? Well, he himself um, later, you know, what, one thing I will say here about Jim is once he finally got a diagnosis, got on good medication, unlike a lot of people who have um, schizo, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, they often don't recognize they're ill. It's part of their brain right. disorder. But Jim does, you know, he didn't initially, but now he does. And he did quite quickly. So I've had so many good discussions with him, and I actually wouldn't have been able to write the book that I wrote without his cooperation, because I would write a chapter, he would read it, we would discuss it, he took his pen and, you know, marked it up or made sure things were accurate. And then he also discussed with me what was what he was thinking at certain times, so I could write, write that in the book. Um, but he has said then in one of our conversations that he felt like something was the matter with him since he was 11 years old. You know, he looked in the mirror when he was 11 years old and thought something's wrong. You know, he hadn't noticed it before, but then he did. And so he never shared that with anybody until years later. But what we did notice was in junior high, um, he changed his friends, you know, between seventh and eighth to ninth grade. And, you know, that's 
obviously often a profile of someone using drugs. So that so we noticed that he had really good students, really for friends, and all of a sudden he's hanging around with a whole different crowd whose parents we didn't know and using drugs. So we, we noticed all of that, but we also thought it was drugs. One of Jim's ninth grade teachers actually told us at a parent-teacher conference that he thought Jim was using drugs. And I actually went so far as to call the school and see if Jim could get into some, you know, anti-drug group or something. And they didn't have anything at the time. That's why in the legislature, when I, you know, had the education committee, I felt so privileged to turn that around, you know, so schools would have a role. Parents, you know, maybe um, they don't want to admit that they're son or daughter is coming down with a mental illness. I know I did not want to, but they're more readily accepting of the fact that they're using drugs and something should be done about that. So I wanted the schools um, to play a role and have more school support staff and have teachers recognize signs so they could refer their students to those professionals and families could be notified if appropriate. That's what we didn't have for our son. You know, we got no help from the schools. We were referred to our insurance company. And I'm sorry to say, I just thought he's not that bad. I I don't think he needs to go to, you know, to the doctor about this, but I was willing to accept the school. It seemed like a smaller step. And that's how we knew something was amiss. But it wasn't until he got, you know, much older, like 19, 20 that we noticed it seemed to be more than that. But still, I, you know, there's all this denial that comes into play. Right. So 21, he gets taken by the police and, oh, the police didn't take him, you said, right? So the crisis sh- team showed up. And right. And what did they do from there then? Did Well, then he went to the emergency room and was admitted to the psych ward. Okay. And there, you know, they... In Minnesota, we call it um, uh, treat and street. You know, they kind of treat people for a little while and then they turn them back out to the street or hopefully if they have a family like Jim did. So he was actually not going to be in the hospital very long, but they did diagnose him with um, with schizophrenia by then. That was when he, we got that diagnosis and he was started on some medication but um, while he was in the hospital, he got started on some strong medication and he actually broke something there to the point where they decided to keep him. So we thought that was actually a good thing. He had a better chance at getting a good start with medication and getting some help. Uh, we had been quite worried if they were going to send him home to us very soon after he'd just barely gotten there. So his being so florid in his actions work to his advantage and often have. So many people take years to get diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But Jim was so actively high profile in his illness that he got help quicker, both by having the police come and then also by staying longer in the psych ward. So it's bad to be so very sick that you're acting out like that. But on the other hand, it worked to his favor. I feel so bad for some people who just, you know, they take years and years before they get any help because they, they're quieter in their illness, but they're just as sick. Right. 
right? So when you say he, it was going to be very short and it turned longer, do you remember how long he was in? Um, you know, that's one thing when writing this book. I, I kept journals the whole time that Jim was sick. I started by just writing doctors' names and numbers and tried to keep track of where he was. Um, but eventually it quickly turned to, I poured my heart out, you know, into the journal and I always dated everything. I'm, I'm a very neurotic dater of things. All my pictures are dated and my scrapbooks and my journal. So I could go back and tell you, but it, it seems to me he was there about a week, a week and a half. And wow. they dismissed him even then too soon. They sent him to a chemical dependency place and we were he, he lasted there like a day or two, and then he had to go to to an actual psych ward. Uh, he was it was his problem is exacerbated by drugs, but he's really his problem is his his mental illness. So um, they didn't send him to the right place. There's there were just so many missteps that were so distressing to us, you know, for him to get there. And then he had some very serious behavioral problems. We never even got to visit him there before he was gone. Um, and then he went. Uh, to a hospital where he stayed, I think he was there, you know, two or three weeks. And we had such good nurses and a really good psychiatrist. And they actually treated us as family members very well. I remember one nurse who surely must have been a family member herself, who said, why don't you write just one page about your son and describe you know, what he's like and what happened. And that was so comforting to do that. I think every hospital should do that with people who are newly diagnosed. You know, it's comforting to families. And also it helps the professionals to see how this person presents isn't how they really are when they're not so sick. Right. Wow. That must be so difficult as a parent to just see him bounced around like that and and not know where he's going to end up, and is he in the right place this time, and are they going to treat him well? Yeah, we were exhausted, quite frankly, just from worry and, you know, not sleeping and, and trying to keep track of everything, and it was just such a high learning curve. We, Even though my grandmother had schizophrenia, she presented totally differently. She never had any punching of walls or breaking things in the psych ward. Or, you know, she was a calm person, and she just heard the radio talking to her and had thoughts, you know, that people were poisoning her, things like that. But, but if you just didn't bring that up and then you could have a regular conversation with her and she was a loving grandmother. And so this, how Jim was acting was nothing like that. And um, so it was very, very distressing. So that was, uh, that was a very, very hard time. And so my only consolation when he was first sick and for quite a while was to be able to go to the legislature and do something about things that we had encountered that I just didn't think it should be that way. You know, you always say there ought to be a law against that. Well, I was a legislator. Right. So that was my saving grace was I could feel normal while going to work on, on problems. And did you share what you were going through at the time at the legislature with your colleagues? You know, I actually did. Um, a lot of people, families bottle up mental illness and keep it quiet. And that, I think, makes everybody worse, you know, because it's my thought that if someone has diabetes or cancer and you talk about it, then that kind of normalizes it. 
but if you are whispering and you know trying to not tell anybody that your son has uh, schizophrenia, then he begins to think there's something shameful about that. You know, whereas if you're just talking about it like any other illness, then um, maybe it's something we can tackle and do something about. So I may uh, share. I don't suffer in silence, shall we say? Yeah. And I hooked up with NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Minnesota, quite quickly because when you're a legislator and you have a problem those lobbyists descend upon you because they want to get to know you. You're going to be able to help them, you know, with their issues that they're promoting at the legislature. And also they're nice people who want to personally help you as well. So um, NAMI actually gave my name to the Minneapolis and St. Paul newspapers, the Pioneer Press and the Star Tribune. And both of them did front page articles about Jim and our family and me when um, when he was first sick. So we were pretty much outed right away. There was no such thing as suffering in silence. So, and I had gone to work with the staff on some initial legislation and I checked with other legislators. So I shared shared this, um, you know, right away. I, as, as you know, I'd been in the legislature for three terms already. I'd been on the school board for two terms. So I was used to, um, talking publicly about problems with our family as examples, you know, for what we were working on in general. And our family was used to that as well. So it kind of seemed normal to Jim that I would keep on talking about him just like I had, you know, all along if I was saying, well, my son didn't make the ski team, you know, and there should be more opportunities for kids than just 10 or, you know, I would say things like that all through his life. And same with our daughter. So, um, so what the fact that I talked about his mental illness, I think, wasn't just seemed normal to him. And yeah. I think it was an advantage for all of us. That's one of my causes is not having making such a secret of mental illness. I know it's personal, and I'm not the one who has it. So I have a different viewpoint. And we've and I've been an elected official. Um, I know everybody doesn't feel that way, but I really do. I think we have to talk about it. Your program is such a plus, you know, to be interviewing people, getting people to talk. Other people who aren't so open and feel really bad can listen and maybe, you know, get a little courage. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly a a big purpose of this podcast, which is, you know, to get other men to hear men sharing their stories and hopefully giving them the courage to face their mental illness and to be able to reach out for help. Because like you said, we we really have to normalize it. I think that's what the stigma is all about. And the more we continue to whisper and keep it a secret, and like you said, it, it can be personal and people need to share on their own timelines. But I do think it is really important to share. People realize they aren't alone. They realize it is no different, like you said, than you would certainly share if your son came down with cancer or diabetes. There's no reason to not share. It's nothing to be ashamed of that somebody comes down with an illness that happens to be in the brain. Exactly. And everybody has, you know, denial is a, the first stage of grief. You know, so like you said, everyone has their own timeline. First, you're in denial. You don't, you hope it goes away. You hope you don't have it. You can't believe you have it. So very few people in that stage of grief, you know, are ready to share but um, but eventually, I think that's that's what we'll help with. 
with, um, like you said, the stigma. And I actually like to use, instead of stigma, I like to use the word discrimination because stigma is just is a type of discrimination. People are discriminated against because people have negative feelings about mental illness. But in the end, um, I think by coming forward, being open, advocating for a better mental health system, we end a lot of the discrimination because there's not just passive stigma, there's active discrimination against people with mental illness. And we can only fight it if we lock arms and speak up. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us, uh, you know, Jim gets out of this hospital where he bounced around. He went first to a, a substance abuse um, place and they realized that was not really the issue. Then he went to a hospital for a few weeks or so. Then did the, I'm sure, I mean, you must have just rallied around him and, and started seeing other doctors to try to figure out next steps. Right. And he actually came home. You know, one thing we didn't know at the beginning is uh, antipsychotics, you know, medications for mental illness work. <laughs> you know, I did, my grandmother had some things that she took, but they just didn't work that well, you know, back in her day. But nowadays, they're, they work, and they work the best on people who are first sick. The first time you're sick and you take those medications, you need less of them, and they work really well. And almost everybody clears up. And um, so Jim cleared up, and he went back to college. And we, in our denial stage still, thought that maybe he would be one, because there are people who have one episode, and then they skate off, and, and they're done. And he seemed to be so doing so well. He stopped taking his meds after he was no longer, he was civilly committed. That's why he did so well, because he then had to take his medication for six months. And then he went back in the winter term, back to college. And he didn't take his meds after he didn't have to. And he didn't crash, you know, for, for a few months. And so we really were deluded into thinking we were the lucky ones. And he thought so too. He just said, I must have had a drug episode that caused my psychosis. And, but little did we know that by spring, after he'd been in college since January, um, he, he got sick again. And then we knew that we were not going to be the lucky ones. We were not the lucky ones. And then we, um, then we had a rocky road um, for two or three years until he landed in a program that stabilized him for, for 10 years. So we had 10 years in the middle there where, um, where we didn't have to worry about him and he was doing really well. Was that a, a day program? It was actually a permanent program. The program still exists and um, it's called Tasks Unlimited. And they have people living like four to eight people in a house, a nice house in a regular neighborhood. And everybody works either half time for sure, and they can work up to full time. And then, um, then they all, in order to be there, have to take their medication. And all the people sit down at a table twice a day and take their meds together. So they watch each other and monitor and and they all share household duties and cooking. And then there's built-in friends. You know, a lot of times people with things like schizophrenia lose their friends and don't get any new ones. And um, so while Jim was there, he developed so many rich friendships and he got better and better from working and having pride in his work. 
but his downfall was um, when he met met a woman who who was a heavy drug user, and she got him back into using some drugs, and he got kicked out of this program. And since then, up until quite recently, we've had a very rocky road with him, but we had that great reprieve where where we could regroup our strength, and, and then we've had to tackle things, quite a few things since then that made the book more interesting, but our lives um, not very happy for a while. Yeah. What, uh, what was his episode like at college that uh, made you realize he was ill again? Well, I hooked him up with a psychologist and a psychiatrist in Montana. He was in Missoula at the University of Montana. Oh, quite a ways and, from home. Yeah, quite a ways from home. He loves the mountains and hiking and things and camping. And so that, he had a mountain bike and did a lot of biking. Um, so he was seeing that psychologist regularly. And apparently it was only towards almost the end of the school year that he stopped taking his meds and or and also started using marijuana again. So he um, actually ended up in jail. He didn't do it, what I would call a real crime. He was totally psychotic, but he um, took a chair from his apartment and broke a window in another one and then walked through the glass into that place and laid on the couch all night. And when the officers found him in the morning, someone called because of the broken glass and he was laying there. He told them he was talking to a voice, you know, so they took him off to, to jail, you know, more criminalization of the mental health system. I would say, why in God's name didn't he get taken to a hospital? You know, but but because he had broken into someone's place, they charged him with uh, burglary, you know. <laughs> so we really um, have a long ways to go in the mental health system with, you know, someone who's obviously sick. He's passively laying there. He went right. cooperatively. Can't we give a pass to someone like that and take him to the hospital? And um, But we don't. You know, we said, he, there he goes to jail. So I had to go out there and hire an attorney and, uh, you know, get him out of jail. Luckily, he had a compassionate judge who said if he would go back to Minnesota and promise to get medical care for his mental illness, if he could stay clean and out of trouble for a year, uh, she would um, dismiss all charges. And that's actually what happened. That judge, to me, should be getting a medal and awards, you know, we found out since then there aren't very many judges like that, but that was an incredible judge. And we also had a really good attorney. You know, I was very dismayed when I was there sitting in the courtroom. No one but Jim did have an attorney. And I just want to say, um, you know, we are a white family. We're, you know, not a wealthy family, but we're not a poor family. We're middle class or upper middle class. And, um, so we can afford attorneys. I could take time off and drive to Montana. You know, we can, and I'm politically connected, so I can advocate for Jim. Even with all of this privilege, we still have had huge problems. But I mentioned throughout the book, and I've thought throughout the last 20 years, what about the other families? You know, the ones who are poor, 
the ones who have a history with the police or they don't trust institutions or yeah. doctors, they, you know, have, would stay away from getting any care or they are from a culture that doesn't recognize a mental illness. The Hmong right. language, right. Um, last time I checked, didn't have a word for mental illness. Maybe they do now. Right. African-American people, you know, they have terrible histories with studies in prison, uh, syphilis, you know, where they yeah. were really treated cruelly and not told what was happening with them. So what about those people in this mental health system that we have? I just worry about that a lot. But yeah. even with all of our privilege, um, still Jim has been uh, criminalized with his mental illness. Right. Yeah, it, it, things may have looked different in Montana had he been a black man breaking the window and laying on the couch. He could you know, have been shot. Yeah, yeah, that is that is sad and scary to say, and unfortunately very true. Um, wow. So you got him back in 10 years. The way you described where he lived, it sounds very similar, or maybe it is, a group home? Very similar. They called mm -hmm. it a lodge, however, because a group home is their staff there usually 20 or there almost always is 24 7 right but in these lodges it was much more independent you know okay. people who have even serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia most people in this program did if they're taking their meds and they're living healthy lifestyles they don't need 24 7 staff nor do they want it you know right. they don't want that kind of paternalism. They want to be independent like anybody else. So the staff in this program would come out only during the day, during the weekdays for meetings or to meet with individual people or to troubleshoot, you know, if anybody was having issues. But mostly, I think this is brilliant. They had their mental health staff on the job, you know, at the work sites, because that's where if there's stress and you're working and anything comes up, you're more uh, stressed out and that's where your mental health issues might materialize rather than when you're home, you know, just relaxing. Right. So, um, so it was a very respectful model where people would, you know, kept track of their own money and Jim had a car there and they, their Friends could go anywhere they wanted. They were not ever having to be chaperoned or anything like yeah. that. They went to coffee houses and grocery shopping on their own. So um, so they called it a lodge to okay. distinguish it from the more, you know, people with developmental disabilities or people that are really dysfunctional with mental illness or autism might need a group, group home. You know, I say a continuum of care. Different people need different things. Yeah. But when people like Jim were doing really well there and all the people were, they, they had a lodge and not a group home. Right. Well, that's awesome. Uh, was that here in Minnesota as, as well? Yes. Yep. And nationally, these lodges are called the fair weather lodge program. And there aren't really many anymore. There's one kind of like it called fountain house in New York where they have people get a lot of support there and they work and things like that. But that's not a traditional fair weather lodge program. They used to be more popular, um, you know, 15 years ago. And lately the mental health system is more geared for setting people up in their individual apartments. And that sounds good. Jim has his own apartment now, but for someone 
who isolates and doesn't have a lot of initiative, that is not always a good thing because everybody needs friends. And so these yeah. lodges, they had such, you know, Jim still has some of his friends that he had from when he was in the lodge. And uh, that's really good for people to regenerate and rejuvenate your brain if you have you know, loving relationships, social contacts. We all need that. Yeah, absolutely. That that social piece is huge, but it also sounds like it's a nice safety net. You know, you're taking your meds along with others. And so if you do happen to kind of slip into the mental illness, at least people are there who might be able to, to let you know things are off and... Uh, so it just seems like it's a little bit of checks and balances for folks, you too. You are very perceptive. That is exactly what we thought. you know. And then think of that. The people who are checking you, if you're somehow trying to cheat your medication or something, it's not staff or parents. Right. It's your peers, you know, your friends. Yeah. And they care about you. And they're like, you know, I, I, did you take your meds? You know, we all really want you to be healthy. That's just such a respectful relationship. Yeah. I love that model. And, but yet there's also, like you said, a check. If somebody is going downhill, the people that also have a mental illness will see it sooner than anybody else, you know, yeah. because they have the same issues. And also the staff at work, you know, they're on the watch. They're there to help, but they also are a check, you know, right there. So Absolutely. beautiful model. I wish there were more more opportunities like that. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Was Jim working while he was living there? He was working while he was living there. He did a variety of things. Um, he drove a van. They had each lodge had its own van, you know, so they could take people places or go grocery shopping. And so Jim drove a van and drove a lot of people to work. So he had routes, you know, all over Minneapolis and St. Paul, taking picking people up, taking them to work. He got stuck once in the winter, and a neighbor pushed him out. You know, he just had a great time doing that. Um, he also most people there do janitorial work and some people say well people with mental illness shouldn't be made to do janitorial work but actually um, that's harder than it looks you know to run a waxing machine or a buffer or um, some of the things that they do and it's also very that repetitive motion it's not stressful you know you have to keep your stress levels down so a lot of people in that program take great pride in their janitorial work they, Jim did that. Um, he also worked in a, it did nurse or gardening type work, not gardening. It was like trimming bushes at businesses and shoveling snow in the winter time and planting flowers. And he really enjoyed that. And he always worked with a partner. So it was one of his friends, you know, that he worked oh, nice. with. And um, what else did he do there? He There's some people that are there that work in a mail room for businesses where they are distributing the mail. Um, Jim actually had an opportunity while he was there to become um, an accountant in their office. He got so good that he was going to school and working on being an accountant. He was going to Metro State, which was just a wonderful place for someone with mental illness to go because they had staff who worked with people and, and they were they made accommodations. If you got anxious during tests, you could take them in the library and not have a time limit and things like that. So um, Tass Unlimited let him work in the accounting office and he was doing low level work, you know, but with the 
possibility that when he graduated, he could do more. And so that's why it was so very disappointing um, when he met this woman and got into drugs, which in like two months time, he was in a big episode and had to get some extra treatment before he could go back to TAS Unlimited. But ultimately, that little introduction back to drugs, which he hadn't used all that time he was there, just was his downfall. He did not uh, did not stay clean. And at that program, they need the people to be working. That's how the finances all work. And people are paying taxes, paying their rent. And so they couldn't keep him um, once he once he started using more. And that was the besides the day when he was so sick, we had to call the police initially. The day he left TAS Unlimited was was our second worst day. Yeah. Oh, it must have been so tough on you. Um, how long ago was that, that he had to leave Tasks Unlimited? Um, he left there um, about almost 10 years ago now. Okay. So we've had, like I said, a rocky road, ups and downs with him, a lot of downs since then. For the past 10 years. Right. Uh-huh. Because he was back into using drugs, he had this relationship with with a woman who was, you know, very much using drugs too. And that, you know, was a very bad combination, his love for her, but then that couldn't exist without all these drugs. So drugs and schizophrenia and antipsychotics is not a good mixture. Your, your medical drugs don't work nearly as well as they should if you add in street drugs. Right, right. And so for 10 years, even up until now, it's it sounds like it's been challenging. It has been challenging, but um, the book ends right when Jim is possibly starting to do a little better because he got on a better medication. You know, which medication you're on makes such a difference. You know, I despise the fact that so many people call this illness a behavioral problem. You know, you've got the behavioral unit or something. It's as if you could behave better, you know, and then you would be done with it. But um, this is a real illness and the medications that you're on and they all are different and they affect everybody differently, really, really work. And so Jim has one that he's on now that has really cleared up his mind and he's doing so much better. He broke up um, with that woman last November and he's been sober since then. He's going to work. And with COVID-19, he's spending a lot of time with us. We see him. He's actually here right while we're doing this interview. And he's in his right mind. He's sober. He's doing really well. I didn't get to write about that in the book because it hadn't happened yet. (laughs) So I am just, I wish I could have ended on a better note, but, um, but I'm, but we're living a better note right now. But so it was through those challenging times that he was sitting by your side, helping you write the book. Yes. Yeah. Well, I started writing the book um, seven years ago okay. when I retired from the legislature. I joined a writing group at the Loft Literary Center where they really have excellent classes and help people learn how to write. And um, so I started out kind of slow, but maybe five years ago is when I really had some chapters together. And that's when I, in earnest, started uh, having him go over them. He started looking at them earlier, but we really got serious about five years ago. So I always um, 
promised him a cup of coffee at the coffee house. He likes coffee at the coffee house better than here at our house. And then he would, you know, put on his glasses and read through the chapter with his pen. And um, and I really enjoyed those those times with him, even if he wasn't doing well. Somehow focusing on a chapter made it be a positive, productive discussion with my son. That's, and, that's um, awesome. I was thinking it must have been such a great bonding activity to, to have him work with you on your book. Very much so. That's what, you know, like I said, it wouldn't have been the same book without his, his cooperation and participation. And he's actually been open um, all along, you know, not too long after he was first diagnosed, he was on uh, the radio with, on a program to talk about his mental illness. He's been interviewed by Newsweek and, you know, he's um, very much a partner in, in talking about his mental illness. I'm really proud of him for that. Yeah, that's really impressive. So I'd like to just dig a little deeper when you say the, the past 10 years have been challenging. When you say that, because then we also hear that you're side by side in a coffee shop and he's working with you on your book. So it's not, it doesn't sound like a rough 10 years means every day is awful and you don't know where he's going to go or what he's going to do. Right. That's ex- right. It's mental illness, as you know, is up and down, up and down. And so we only would meet in the coffee shop if he was, you know, sober or relatively sober and, and doing well. But in between there, you know, we had to deal with some suicide attempts and, um, you know, always related to taking too many meds and too many other things, you know, always overdose type suicides, but very serious suicide attempts. And um, at one point he you know, jumped off a balcony and broke his back and, you know, things like that, the kind of calls that you get when you're half asleep and then you wake up and, and get a call like that. And your son is in the emergency room. Those aren't uh, any fun fun times to deal with. That's for sure. So, um, you know, we almost lost him a few times. And so those were very stressful, very heartbreaking, but there were also the times when um, physically he was doing fine, but because of the combination of his psychosis and drug drug use, um, he would just be not our son and very belligerent and you know yelling and saying very hurtful things that he may or may not even remember later. Um, but those cutting um, cutting words when someone is not doing well, the grouchiness and the downright meanness is, I think, the worst of all. That's much worse than than a suicide attempt. Then you feel maternal and, you know, you want to do something and comfort the person and, you know, they're really down. That's better right. than if the son you love and you know is a wonderful, kind, sweet person but he's yelling at you and calling you a bitch and other names. Um, that to me is much worse. Just like psychological damage, they say is worse than physical abuse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, how, how did you cope? You and your family. How did you? How did you support your own mental health? Well, while in the legislature, I could work on bills and you know go and advocate and get work off my angst and. St- 
my steam and my grief there. Once I left the legislature, um, we just had to start learning to take to take um, breaks and things. You know, we have another child. Our daughter is two years older than Jim, um, Angela, and she's married. We have this wonderful granddaughter who's now 16. So she's never known a time when she didn't have her uncle Jim. And, um, you know, she loves him dearly. And she's also been afraid of him when he was really, you know, off the rails. So she's had a quick uh, education on what schizophrenia can look like at the various extremes. But, you know, when you have a grandchild, that just makes the whole world better. And occasionally we've taken, Roger and I have taken vacations with, um, with Angela and her husband, Matt and Taylor, and we just plain get away and, you know, forget about things. Just Roger and I have taken vacations and, or we visit relatives or we're with friends. You know, we have such supportive friends who know about Jim and, and um, that's much better than having friends who wouldn't know about Jim. You know, this, again, these families that keep their mental illness um, secret, then they don't have the benefit of having supportive friends or family. That's a really so, good point. It's really important, I think, to to share. Um, so we always have had respites and breaks, and um, and also when Jim is was with his girlfriend, even though they were a toxic combination, often he was there, and we didn't see him for you know days at a time. So that gave us time to regroup, even though we knew what was going on when he was with her was not good. So um, those are, I think, just the nature of the cyclical nature of mental illness when it's you're sometimes better, sometimes not. And then um, when Jim wasn't physically present with us all the time and we had breaks, that's what kept us going. And also a few years ago, I formed a group with, with we call ourselves the six moms. So there's six of us. First, it was two of us, then three, and now we're up to six. And we've limited it to that because you have to have a small enough number where you can all share. But we get together once a month, and now it's Zoom meetings, of course. But we used to get together at various restaurants and have pizza and wine and or beer. And then we would just let our hair down and share, you know, our deepest concerns. And everyone in this group has actually a son, it could have been a daughter, but everybody just happens to have a son who has um, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. So wow. we know of what we speak, we can you know, have shorthand talking to each other and uh, start right in with the problem without a lot of introduction. And then we troubleshoot with each other. Oh, that's that's godsend. That is phenomenal. That's, like, that's a support group. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, and one of the women in our group is a physician, and two are social workers, one is a psych nurse, and then others are, you know, are more generalists and I'm, I can provide advocacy information. We really are a sophisticated group. Again, it's part of our privilege. You know, we're all white women who are very, very knowledgeable and very connected. Two of the children are biracial, but by and large, um, I just think everybody of every culture should have an opportunity for such a group. And if they don't have within the group the information that we have, they should have a way to get it 
somebody as a resource should be able to come in and meet with them occasionally as they support each other. Because um, really, there is nothing in the mental health system that's ever written down. What if this happens? Then what do you do? And, you know, you just always, there's something new. And you need, you know, six mothers to tackle the problem. I think dads should have similar groups. You know, it's just so helpful to to brainstorm together. That's awesome. And support each other. What a great support. You know, one thing we didn't talk about uh, really at all was just kind of everything that Jim was going through and how he was able to handle it and how it impacted him and his life. You know, we talked about kind of your roller coaster of feelings and trying to advocate for him and and those pieces. How was Jim able to manage when when he would get these different diagnoses and such? Well, he has said he was so, um, you know, confused at the beginning and just didn't know what was going on. He was, I, you know, as, as much as his father and I were in distress, he had to be so much more in distress. He was actually spent a lot of time being terrified because he had these thoughts that I was not his real mother. You know, someone, some foreign being had taken over my body and it wasn't, I wasn't really his mom. So he's talking with me. I'm trying to comfort him. And in his mind, he's thinking, she's evil. She's not my mom. I need to get rid of her so I can have my real mom back. And he thought someone in the first psych ward was actually his dad instead of his own dad, didn't look anything like his own dad, but he was that confused. And then to think of adding to that mix of psychosis, new drugs, you know, that wipe you out and that you, you know, that would knock down a horse, you know, some of them, and they have to get used to those. So he was in the most distress of all. And it, you know, it took me a long time to realize that, that as much as I was going through, it was a mere drop in the bucket compared to what he was going through. People who have illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and can't trust their own minds, I can't even imagine how awful that must be. Yeah, right. I was thinking about that when you mentioned he didn't believe you were his mom and then, you know, you must be battling these thoughts, like trying and wondering about like second guessing every thought you have, like, is that really my dad? And am I really in college? And am I, you know, just questioning everything? Exactly. And he still has, he still feels that way. Sometimes he doesn't think we're not his parents anymore. But he even with all the drugs he's on and the really good one he's on right now, uh, clozapine, um, he still occasionally will ask me or his dad, did you just say I'm a loser or I suck or something, you know, he still hears these very negative thoughts. So imagine, you know, we all have people that drag us down every day along with people who build us up. But if your own mind is telling you that your own parents who you should be able to count on to have your back at all times, even they are making fun of you or saying terrible things about you or don't really like you. Um, that just to me is the saddest thing in the world. And so I now I, but he's able to share if he heard that to, you know, verify, did you say that? He doesn't just silently think I said that anymore. He asked, did you just say that? And I say, no, Jim, you know, I would never say that. And I don't feel that way at all. I would never say that. That's your mind uh, playing 
tricks again, and then he can sigh and relax. And But he still needs that reassurance. It's this constant having to balance out what's real and what's not that I think just wears down people who who have any form of schizophrenia. Right. Wow. I have spoken to some men who live with bipolar disorder that say, you know, the the manias are so wonderful, actually, after going through a major depressive bout, that that is one of the reasons they sometimes decide they don't want to take their medications. They want to enjoy the good feeling, the good rush while they have it. I'm wondering about Jim when he has stopped taking his medications. Is it a similar thing? Like he's, he, he doesn't want it to take away the, the good feelings? Well, especially at the beginning, it was similar. You know, he has schizoaffective, so he does, you know, that means you have schizophrenia and bipolar yep. disorder. Yep. So he does have um, the highs and lows, but unfortunately for him, he has a lot more lows than he has highs. But when he first used to be um, manic, he did have that feeling. He read The Unquiet Mind by uh, Kate Jamison and she described she had bipolar, has bipolar disorder and a physician or a psychiatrist, I think. And she um, had written very eloquently about those highs and how she didn't want to end them. And Jim read that book and said, that's exactly how I feel. You know, she could fly, she could, you know, soar and read everybody's minds and, you know, do all these things. And she eventually had to come to terms that, the lows were so bad that she had to give up the highs. So Jim is reconciled to that, I think, now because he has, when he has um, lows, he has such scary delusions, even to this day, that he is afraid not to take his meds and he can't dare have those highs because he knows then the lows are coming on and he's going to feel so bad that he says he wants to die. He feels so bad. So he has sacrificed those highs. But in the early days, when they did think he had bipolar disorder and he now has both, um, those highs were wonderful. And he thought he was powerful. He was happy. He was outgoing. He's always been not a very outgoing person. He likes being with a small group, not a large group. But while he was manic, you know, he was the man about town and he could all of a sudden had the gilded tongue where he said what he wanted to say and didn't have to think about it. And, felt confident, you know, so that is, um, that was a wonderful feeling. But now he's afraid to have those because um, the lows are so scary for him. Right. So he, he's determined to stay on his meds now, it sounds like. He is more determined than, than, um, than anyone could ever be. He's definitely stays on his meds. And so now we just have to hope he stays sober too. You know, that's right. the one thing that does in his meds, but he's been taking his meds for, you know, a dozen or more years. And that is something he does without fail. He takes all his own meds. He's got so many and they all have to be taken at different times. And he is incredible about doing all that. I talk with other parents, some in my six moms group where they have to help parcel out the drugs or make sure they get taken or some of them are too too uh, addictive to be taken all at once and they parcel them out. I do none of that with Jim. He is wonderful and responsible and determined to take his meds and he 
handles it all. He's got so many bottles on his dresser and think I'm so thankful every day that I don't have to get involved with that. Yeah, that's awesome. So like you said, now it's just uh, keeping him sober. Right. Yep. And yeah. as long as he's sober, his drugs will work. And I think he's, I'm, I think, and I hope, and I pray that's going to continue because he's been sober now for almost um, two years. Oh, that's fantastic. Excellent. Yes. Well, uh, Mindy, tell us a bit more about your book. Again, the title is Fix What You Can, Schizophrenia and a Lawmaker's Fight for Her Son. Yes, and it comes out through the University of Minnesota Press, who are a wonderful publisher, I have to say, um, on October 6th. And the launch for the book, which would have been at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, is still going to be through them, um, but it will be virtual, as everything is nowadays. And um, the it will be co-sponsored by the University of Minnesota Press. And we are having myself speak about the book and then Sue Abderholden, who is the executive director of NAMI Minnesota. She will respond after I get done and then we'll have questions and answers. So um, there's room for 500 people, 500 slots for that event. So we're hoping to fill them all up and lots of people can join in in celebrating the book, but more importantly, you know, celebrating the fact that the mental health system isn't perfect. It needs a lot of work, but we're working on it. It's getting better. And I just so want people to have empathy for people with mental illness and their families if they don't know about it. And if they do, I want them to know that they're not alone. And there's plenty of help and plenty of other people in the same boat. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, so the launch is that October sixth, the day of the book uh, release. The launch is October eighth. The October. book actually becomes available on October sixth, but it, October eighth is the official launch. Great. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, how would people how would people be able to sign up for that launch event? Well, it will. You know, I'm not absolutely positive myself, but we will be putting it out on social media. So okay. it will either come from the University of Minnesota Press or probably more probable from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. And there will be lots of links for people to sign up as the time gets closer. And um, since people cannot come and have me sign books at the event, you know, they can order right after the program it will be put up on the screen but even better go to my webpage which is mindygreiling.org and there there are links for the places you can get the book you could get it at indiebound which will hook you up with any independent bookstore or barnes and noble amazon the university of minnesota press there's links on the webpage mindygreiling.org people can order the book right now and then it will be mailed out from the warehouse um, by early october oh that's fantastic that's exciting very very exciting 
So, Mindy, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, so I, I typically end every episode with men by asking them for a piece of advice for somebody who's listening that may be going through a, a challenging time. And I'd love to ask you that question. So maybe there's a, a man out there like your son who has just experienced some things and they aren't sure what's going on, or maybe a parent who realizes like you said, the, the friends are changing and maybe the moods are changing and they're really nervous and concerned about their child. What, what piece of advice would you give them? I would say seek help and discuss your concerns with others because there's lots of help out there. You could call NAMI Minnesota or you could just talk out loud about it. You know, anybody who speaks about their mental illness, even if they just tell people at their church or synagogue or mosque, or they you know, mention it to their friends or mention it when you're getting your hair cut you know, to the person who cuts your hair. Wherever you bring up mental illness, as I'm sure you know, Al, from your program and, and all the people you're talking to, then everyone comes out too. You know, They're so relieved that you opened the door and then they talk to you and support you and help you and offer advice. That's what I think I learned quickest and really well when I started talking about Jim's mental illness, how much help and how much support. And that's why I feel bad about people who live in secrecy because they don't get that help. Yeah, that is such a, a really good point that uh, if you do keep it a secret or you do have that shame, which which really you you have to get past because there's nothing to be ashamed about with mental illness. But if you don't, aren't able to share it, you miss out on so much help and support from people. That's just a, a brilliant point. And I know you mentioned NAMI Minnesota. And for those listeners who are elsewhere in the States, if you just go to NAMI.org, you can find out if there's an affiliate near you. Um, and uh, Mindy, I just want to thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited uh, for your book. I'm definitely going to try to be at the virtual launch. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you so much for your work at the legislature for your work around education, which is obviously one of my passions as well, and mental health, another one of my passions it's just, you did amazing work for your 20 years there. You have an awful lot to be proud of about, and now you are, are a published author. It's, I thank you very much, and thank you, Al, for having me on this program. You are quite an accomplished interviewer, I have to <laughs> thank say. Thank you very much. All you right, are awesome. very smooth and have the gift of, of, of tracking and such a wonderful voice. Uh, I'm so honored to be on your program. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Mindy, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. All right, and you too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.